It's August 11th, 2023. This is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush with Room Now. This week, we've got reports from Chinese investigators, Italian investigators, Swedish investigators, and world, worldwide surveys. Welcome to the wonderful wide world of rheumatology here on Room Now. Let's begin with the Swedes. Swedes did an interesting study looking specifically at the risk of stroke in patients who have ANCA-associated vasculitis. The cohort, 325 patients. What do you think the risk of stroke was? Well, they found 8%. That led to an incidence rate of about 11 cases per 1,000 patient years, and this was higher than the general population. Not surprising. Chronic inflammation in large vessels, medium to large vessels, can translate to vascular events, especially in the brain. That's about an 85% increase over the general population. Risk factors were being under age 65, interestingly, that was a threefold higher rate, and having high platelet counts, about a 14%. Having um, had stroke actually had no overall outcome on survival, which I found surprising. But anyway, um, this is an uncommon and a lot of the things we're going to talk about today seem to be uncommon reports in common diseases. And that's kind of what you need to know about. Um, here's another one, scleroderma. And, you know, a lot of our patients with scleroderma have um, bloating and GI symptoms. Well, there's a, a report out of the Johns Hopkins Scleroderma Study Group. They do fabulous work, do they not? 188 patients with scleroderma. And they found an 8.5% incidence of anti-gefferin antibodies. I didn't know about gefferin antibodies. What is gefferin? It's a novel enteric nervous system autoantigen expressed in um, my, my enteric ganglia. Um, and having antibodies to that is, may be part of the GI dysfunction that we see in the subset of scleroderma patients who have it. In their case, um, it was 8.5% of their total cohort I imagine it did not have exclusivity on GI symptoms like severe constipation and bloating. But if you had anti-gefferin antibodies, you were more likely to have severe constipation, 46% versus those who didn't have it, 15%. Or bloating, 54% versus 25%. About a, a quarter of the patients who had these anti-gefferin antibodies, it was their only autoantibody. So there's something here. And I think that something can tell us... Um, maybe a little bit more about the pathogenesis here and maybe how we can attack it. Because right now, such patients often are hard to treat. Uh, you know, the MISC disease that came about as a result of COVID uh, affecting children looking like Kawasaki's, but not Kawasaki's, and actually could affect um, young adults and adolescents. Uh, we know that uh, steroids and IVIG, the mainstay of therapy. There have been a number of reports about the utility of anakinra. This is, I think, a U.S. Uh, nationwide study, 44 sites, over 1,500 patients. Overall, they found 13% had received anakinra alone or in combination with other immunosuppressive agents. And they found quite a variable response. So compared to um, IVIG or steroids, anakinra was inferior. Compared to IVIG plus steroids, anakinra was inferior. 
and they measured success by the need for vasopressors, ventricular function, or elevated CRPs. Now, while this is in contrast to some of the reports that are out there saying anakinra can be effective in these patients, I think this is a reporting bias. So, you know, why do people use anakinra or use steroids or IVIG? This was not controlled. This is an observational cohort study. So I think this goes with a grain of salt. Um, I think I still would lean on my pediatric rheumatology colleagues for guidance on how to best manage this. I'm probably using steroids and IVIG. And in patients who look like they have, you know, an impending cytokine storm, um, a macrophage activation thing, maybe I'm gonna use anakinra. Uh, I found this report in a surgical journal, I think it was JAMA Surgery, about perioperative pain control using either gabapentin or pregabalin. We often use both of those, right? For people who have chronic bad pain, we hope that it works. But if you've followed us, you know, we've reported a lot of research studies that have shown these drugs are not all that great in controlling pain. And that kind of sucks because we need good, effective pain control drugs. And we're not allowed to use the ones that work or that are strong. I mean, it's just a real mess out there in pain management. But this is a network meta-analysis that compares a lot of different studies. Um, what's the number? 27 uh, randomized control trials, 1,861 patients. Interestingly, the best performing agent um, compared to placebo was gabapentin, either 900 milligrams a day, that would be 300 TID, or 1,200 milligrams a day. And that was better than lesser doses of gabapentin and was threefold better than um, any dose of pregabalin, either 75, 150, or 300 a day. And better means that they had lower pain scores and less opioid use in addition to either the gabapentin or pregabalin. So I feel good about this. I actually do use more gabapentin um, than pregabalin. I find that um, when patients come to me on gabapentin, they're grossly underdosed. They're on 100 a day, 100 TID. And honestly, my pain control doses on gabapentin, I must say, are generally are 900 to 1,800 milligrams a day. Um, I think that this sort of supports that kind of uh, prescribing. A prospective open-label study shows the utility of uh, the IL-17 inhibitor, secukinumab, in Takeyasu's. Um, this is open-label. This is a total of, what's this, 40, 52 patients. 19 um, get treated with secukinumab. 34 get treated with TNF. You wonder why one got one versus the other. But they both look pretty good. They both had um, comparable 55 to 60% um, uh, complete or partial responses at three months, got better by six months. Uh, overall, it looked like, uh, what's that, four, 10% flare rates with secukinumab going out to 48 weeks. And um, wait, that's, that's four of 20. That's a 20% flare rate. And the flare rate with the TNF inhibitor was 12 out of 34. That's like a close to 33% flare rate. So maybe a little less flares in patients treated with secukinumab and then rolling off of that. But you know, there are trials in progress looking at secukinumab uh, as um, treatment for vasculitis. We know about GCA. 
Um, I see, think we're going to see PMR, and here's studies with Takeyasu that shows encouraging uncontrolled preliminary data. I think I'd have a hard time getting this approved for use right now. Um, a nice study about muscle disease um, shows that in a large cohort, again, I think this is the Hopkins cohort, um, of over 3,000 patients with adult idiopathic inflammatory myositis, what do you think the incidence of myocarditis was? Well, the number of cases was actually 14. I think that amounts to about 0.5%. Most of these were black, but I think that reflects the region in which the data was collected. Um, Two-thirds of them had the antisynthetase syndrome at the same time. 80% um, of those had active um, contemporaneous inflammatory myositis. If you had myocarditis, um, your five-year five survival was not good. It was 55%. Um, and they all died with very low EFs. So this is a, not a good complication of patients with um, idiopathic inflammatory myositis. You may have seen this past week the IMPULSE study. This is a one-year phase four trial testing the IL-23 inhibitor, rizinkizumab, um, in standard doses versus oral primalast in standard doses in 352 patients with moderate plaque psoriasis. Rizinkizumab was a slam dunk as far as efficacy. The POSSE 90 score at 16 weeks was 56% for rizinkizumab and only 5% for primalast. Um, again, where these drugs fit in the management of skin or joint disease is still a much debated issue. I think a primalast is not for mild patients. I think it's for other patients in whom it works. And when it works, it works great at severe disease and at mild disease. It gets labeled for mild disease because the percentage responses are not as high as its competitors. But yet it has a place. It does work and it is quite safe. But yeah, in skin disease, the IL-23 inhibitor was gonna be a slam dunk here. I don't even know why this trial was done. Well, the trial we've all been waiting for, of course, is how to best control rheumatoid arthritis using pizza. Yeah, that's right. A study from Italy, cross-sectional analysis of 365 patients and their dietary habits showed that patients who ate a half a pizza more than once a week, um, compared to those who ate it less than two times a week, I'm sorry, two times a month, was associated with get this, 70% less disease activity, um, especially in those who had more severe RA. They attribute this benefit to, um, and the paper's a riot to read. They, they talk about the best pizza in the world being in Italy and that it's known for its pizza and blah, blah, blah. I'm sorry, go to Brooklyn. Try to get some pizza in Brooklyn. Go to Chicago. I just got back from Milan. I didn't like the pizza in Milan. I tried it four times. Now, again, please, if you're Italian, now take me under your wing and take me to your best pizza place, uh, and I'll take you to mine in Brooklyn. But it doesn't matter. Pizza's pizza, right? But they say that the benefit here is due to largely the mozzarella and the olive oil. All right. You know, this is a headline. Um, you heard it here um, first. Uh, another Italian study was an observational study about the use of JAK inhibitors in 685 patients. I think this is a several center study in Italy. Um, half of it was baricitinib, 31%, tofacitinib, 14%, UPA, 7%, filgotinib. 
The interesting thing about this study is not what happened, blah, 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 but how many of them got a JAK inhibitor as first-line therapy? That was 47%. The safety events here were really quite low and pretty much in line with what you would expect. An interesting study out of China looked at the incidence of comorbidities in RA, specifically diabetes. And they found in, amongst 5,000, over 5,000 patients, that about 10% developed diabetes. And the diabetic risk was significantly lower in those who were treated with biologic DMARDs, 50% lower, methotrexate, 50% lower, and hydroxychloroquine, 48% lower. TNF inhibitors were, also, were protective in here with a 31% protection. So this mean, does this mean that better disease control by using aggressive therapies leads to a lower risk of diabetes? Or does it mean that better disease control by more aggressive therapies leads to less steroid use or less sedentary activity? You know, there's a lot of confounders here. Um, but nonetheless, diabetes is a major comorbidity in RA. And if it takes using aggressive therapies to get there, go for it. I like this report about um, outpatient remote monitoring of RA patients. This is a meta-analysis of seven studies in over 4,400 patients comparing various modes of monitoring patients, including electronic patient-reported outcome measures, measures or EPROMs. Uh, and they found that the EPROM groups had overall lower disease activity, higher remission rates, um, and fewer outpatient, I'm sorry, fewer face-to-face -face visits. What's not to like here? I know many of you did telemedicine during the pandemic and have abandoned it because it's not what you do. You don't think you're as good at it. But the data is that patients appreciate it and it can work for certain patients. And this data says these people are doing fine. Stable RA, you know, and again, I'm not saying it's the only visit, but it's when they did it, it worked well. This is backed up by a GRA study started by Phil Robinson, um, RIP Phil, we love you. Um, about patient perspectives um, on telemedicine during the pandemic. So GRA was amazing in all the data it put out about COVID and our patients. They also had a cohort where they were reaching out to the patients themselves to gather data. They got data from almost 600 patients um, during the COVID pandemic. And overall, they found that 78% of patients had used telemedicine. Um, and that the majority of those, 61% of those, um, noted that telemedicine was either as effective or more effective than an in-person visit. It was more likely to be used in younger patients or well-received in younger patients, and especially in North America. Again, this is something that should be part of your repertoire if you're going to be the rheumatologist of the future. The cold, what's this called? The cold short study, cold court study, something like that. It's an open label, head to head um, trial of colchicine versus prednisone in the management of acute calcium pyrophosphate deposition disease, especially, uh, namely, pseudo gout. So colchicine on day one and then um, 1.5 milligrams day one and then one milligram on day two and then prednisone 30 milligrams on day, days one and two. The outcome 
readout here was pain improvement at 24 hours after the attack. Patients were on average 88 years of age. Half the cases involved the knee, a 20% involved the wrist. Colchicine and prednisone basically each had about almost a 50% reduction in pain scores. The only, so efficacy-wise, they're both effective. Congratulations, knock yourself out. I don't like the study because it was just a, um, a short course. I think when I'm managing CPPD attacks or gout attacks, it's never like two days of treatment. It's almost like four, five, six, seven, ten, right? But nonetheless, they're giving you the short readout here. You have to assume that maybe with longer observation and prolonged therapy, they might do better. But the main readout here was still at 24 hours. And there, colchicine had more, as you would imagine, diarrhea and GI side effects. Prednisone had a little bit more hyperglycemia and hypertension. So choose your poison and go with it because these are effective, ma effective management tools in uh, uh, pseudo-gout. So I want to encourage you that if you have a case or a question that you'd like to discuss here on the podcast, please click on the website or the email, the blue box in the bottom left-hand corner, ask Kush anything, record your um, case or question, or send it to me as an email at jackcush or jackcush at roomnow.com. Be sure to check out our poster hall on the website. We'll talk to you next week. Be safe.